Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. March 9th, 2023, the Another Florida Man is Running for President edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Las Vegas today. Whatever your depiction, imagined vision of me in Las Vegas is, think the opposite. Whatever the glamour and excitement of Las Vegas is, I'm experiencing exactly the opposite of that. I am joined, of course, by John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. Wherever he goes is glamour embodied. So I know that's glamorous. Hello, John. Hi. I really want to get plumb the depths of this visit of yours to Las Vegas, but I know we have to stay focused. Yeah, let's stay focused. I'm at a conference. It's about podcasting. The conference is nice. The accommodation's not great. I am also joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, who also, in her own way, is glamour embodied. Hello. <laughs> in what way would that possibly be, David? But thank you. The glamour of the law, the glamour of... of, of adamantine intelligence deployed uh, for the service of the public in that way this week on the gap fest ron desantis is riding incredibly high how strong a candidate for president will he be then the official end of the COVID emergency will bring all kinds of huge changes to the lives of poor americans and migrants we will talk through some of those changes and what they mean and whether they're good or bad for the people who are going to be affected by them then what is going on with the abortion pills? Emily will explain. Plus, of course, we're going to have cocktail chatter. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis gave his state of the state address this week, all the same trappings as a State of the Union speech, standing ovations, the pomp filled entrance. It was not exactly the launch of his presidential campaign, but clearly part of that rollout. He had lost weight. He was confident and he basked in the vast support of the florida legislature the republican heavy florida legislature let's listen to a bit so we find ourselves in florida on the front lines in the battle for freedom together we have made florida the nation's most desired destination and we have produced historic results but now's not the time to rest on our laurels we have the opportunity and indeed the responsibility to swing for the fences so that we can ensure Florida remains number one. Don't worry about the chattering class. Ignore all the background noise. Keep the compass set to true north. We will stand strong. We will hold the line. We won't back down. And I can promise you this, you ain't seen nothing yet. Thank you all. God bless you. John, DeSantis is expected to launch his campaign, his presidential campaign, officially after the legislative session ends in a couple of months, when he will have recorded tons more legislative triumphs, uh, judging by how how much that legislature seems to want to do his bidding. What is he going to try to accomplish in these next couple of months to set himself up? 
I guess there's I guess there's a specific and a more general. I'm I'm less interested in the specific, but they will all add up to a general. So he will try to he will try to um, take actions that will underline his basic pitch, which is that he is an efi- an efficient and precision uh, guided version of Donald Trump. That he has the um, Uh, pugnacious and culture warrior credentials, and that more than just tweeting a lot and being a lot of bluster, he actually gets things done. And whether he actually gets things done, um, I mean, he can point to things like the parental rights in education bill, which um, opponents call the don't say gay bill. And that's one of the things that's being um, discussed is is, um, the bill would um, ban instruction for, uh, uh, about sexual orientation or gender identity. At the moment, it's capped at third grade. Legislation will broaden it to eighth grade. Um, he will point to things like that. He will even point to his social media bill, um, which was an effort to um, uh, uh, ban social media platforms from um, muzzling people like Donald Trump on social media, which didn't go anywhere. But he wants to rack up a number of um, high-profile moments that he will be able to point to as evidence that he actually gets things done on um, these series of culture issues. He can point to things like low taxes in Florida and the, all the people that move into the state and stuff like that. But in terms of your question, which is what does he want to do now? And that's all towards saying, not only am I ideologically aligned with you, but I'm able to actually get things done. And if you missed that that was his um, pitch, he was at the Reagan uh, Library where candidates always go. And he made that pitch um, precisely, which was, you didn't see our administration leaking like a sieve. You didn't see a lot of drama or palace intrigue. What you saw was surgical precision execution day after day. So obviously he's referring there to the drama of the Trump administration. That surgical precision idea is what he's going to try and put on display in the next uh, several months. Emily, I'm aware that I'm a a sucker, but Ron DeSantis seems like an awfully compelling GOP presidential candidate for the for the people who are going to vote in the Republican primaries and maybe an incredibly strong general election candidate. He has so much of what was effective about Trump and what was good for as far as Republicans were concerned, notably to use John's word pugnaciousness and the owning of the libs, but with a record that Republicans will like of genuine accomplishment and without Trump's manifest personality flaws. He has his own personality flaws, but he doesn't really have all of Trump's personality flaws. Is that a question or are you just penning a love letter to him? That's a question. (laughs) Are you penning a love letter on his behalf from GOP primary voters or in a more mainstream way? Or maybe you're wondering what the difference is? Both. I'm saying like, I'm saying he seems like he's really set up for the Republican primary very well, which we'll talk about. But that also he is likely to be a pretty strong general election candidate, given that he can point to a lot of accomplishments and he's not Trump. You're right about the primary campaign. I mean, one thing in terms of the primary I've been wondering is whether the fact that he has such a steam engine of support, a kind of head start, is just going to be hard to stop. That maybe there's something about this media environment and the way that attention works that will be different than in other years where, you know, at, at this point for um, when Trump ran and won, everything was very unsettled. Maybe it will be harder to unsettle it. On the other hand, maybe the media and people will just get tired of him. And so there'll have to be some moment where he's toppled and then other people can come along. In terms of the general election, I mean, 
I would like to think that the culture war crusades he's on are not actually very mainstream and would alienate a lot of centrist voters. But there's a data point on your side, which is that he won his um, last governor's race in November by 19 points. I mean, really a wide margin, especially in Florida, which we think of as a state where voters have been pretty evenly divided. So Maybe you're right, although I have to say I don't really get it because it seems like such narrow casting to me, most of what he's doing. John, what's your take on all of that? From a like on paper perspective, um, what is what supports David's argument is basically if you think of the general election as it's sorted through this very, very super highly preliminary moment, you've sort of got um, MAGA versus woke. So Joe Biden is always talking about the MAGA Republicans. Um, That has, uh, as a matter of branding, um, both positively and negatively, has really broken through in in terms of when polling, you know, when when CBS asked in polling, um, only 15% of the country didn't um, have a full understanding of what MAGA was. That's pretty low for a new buzzword. And it's not a popular thing to be associated with MAGA. It is in the Republican politics, but more broadly, it is not. <clears throat> so that's the Democratic side. On the Republican side, the, um, you know, it's everything is woke that you want to attack. Politics right now is in the Republican side, not about affirmatively g- going for things, but defending against the incursions by the socialists and the woke. And DeSantis owns that territory. The problem from a general election perspective, actually, is the USA Today did a poll, and it turns out that 56% of those surveyed said that the term woke means to be informed, educated on, and aware of social injustices. So it doesn't have the negative connotations that MAGA does, but that's for another day. At the moment, DeSantis has woke. He can also make this competence pitch sufficient for Republican ears. He's got a low tax, tax state. He was, right now, in terms of Republican politics, in the right place on COVID, bristling against shutdowns. He's got a lot of people moving to the state and he served in the military. Like that's a really good um, thing on paper. The problem for him is, you know, Scott Walker had a lot of good stuff on paper too. We have no idea how DeSantis will handle the actual push and pull of the primaries. You know, he's pretty proud of himself and pretty self-satisfied. And those kinds of people tend to get smashed. And in the end of the day, Donald Trump can be Donald Trump. His 24, 25% of the Republican electorate ain't really leaving him. DeSantis has to try and chip away some portion of Trump's base, which is very hard. And he's going to have to compete with all these other people. So he's going to have to ride two horses. He's going to have to appeal to MAGA land and the voters in the primaries who are shopping. That can all, you know, come falling apart. And oh, by the way, Donald Trump is one of the best political fighters. You know, he tears down people who look like they might be good on paper pretty effectively. One of the things that actually I'm puzzled by is that to me, the manifestly problematic piece of DeSantis that he's, is that he seems deeply unlikable, that he just seems like a person you definitely would not want to hang out with and just seems like a smug, uh, uh, contemptuous dick. But that seems like actually is now a feature of Republican candidates. That seems to be like no longer a bug. It seems to be something that that people are actually striving to have is to be because that signals that you're you're not weak. It signals likability of the sort that a Jeb Bush had or a Mitt Romney has is somehow signals weakness in this Republican Party in a way that that I don't think it used to. And and I'm not sure that his dis, his unlikability is as much of a handicap as you would have think you would think it would be. I think what you're touching on, which is really interesting, is goes back to your one of your bedrock principles, David, which is the candidate who's having more fun is winning. Donald Trump was cruel to 
almost every possible group that you can imagine. Um, family members, the disabled, women, on and on. But he was having fun in the arena. And, and, and Republican candidates loved his sense of fun. And you look at his, his rallies and they're a carnival. While they both might have um, the kind of bruiser mentality, DeSantis doesn't have Trump's sense of owning the libs as a source of play. That seems to be the distinction. Emily, what if you were preparing the Biden reelection campaign brief to run against DeSantis, what would you be hoping for? What are the ways in which you would hope this campaign would would fizzle or where would you look to attack him? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think you would try to um, set yourself apart from the cruel streak that is in some of DeSantis's proposals. I mean, the way he talks about gender identity and trans people and queer people is just full of um, scorn and othering them. And I hope that most Americans understand that like that could be them in some other capacity, that it's just like uh, not the way we want to be as a country. So I think that Biden could present himself as the kind of decency alternative and the more likable alternative. And sometimes that kind of signaling matters just as much as policy. And I also think Biden can just stick with the basics. I want to make sure that Social Security and Medicare are solvent. I care about, you know, these big equity issues in American life, not about setting off groups and like sending child abuse investigators after them, which is, you know, part of what is being threatened in Florida. And I guess the other thing is abortion. I mean, the Florida legislature is now talking about introducing a six-week ban that would go into effect if the courts in Florida uphold the current 15-week ban. And that would put DeSantis in a much more extreme position on abortion. You know, in 2022, in the midterms, abortion didn't work out so well for the Republicans. So maybe that's something that Biden can take advantage of. Is a six-week ban basically a full ban? I mean, almost. Is that a thing you Republicans are doing just to be like, oh, we don't ban abortion? Like we, you know, we recognize their, you know, that there are occasions, but it's basically a full ban. I mean, you can take a pregnancy test before six weeks. You have to just be super, super aware and on it. And then you have a very narrow window. So it's not a total ban, but it does um, make it very difficult for people. John, to close out this topic, why is Trump's campaign, such as it is so far, so flaccid? It's flaccid in the on the Donald Trump scale, which is he's not owning the conversation. He can't get the entire media world to turn his head. He doesn't set the agenda except sort of negatively as more and more information comes out about various people being subpoenaed and indictments being issued and judges ruling against him and so forth. Um, and now, even with the revelations from the latest uh, series of disclosures in the in the Dominion Systems lawsuit against Fox, you see that um, all you know that many of the of his biggest boosters at that channel, you know, were privately highly derisive of him. Although you can also spin that the other way, which is, you know, they're privately derisive, but in public um, commit fawning acts of um, of fealty pirouettes um, is fine with him because that's all proof of his power. And who cares what they say about him? If they genuflect to him, that doesn't matter. You know, that's the sign of his real power. But he hasn't been interviewed on Fox since he announced so that's a, a a different dynamic. But I would note, anyway, that's all along preamble. He's still winning by, you know, 20 points, 30 points in various polls. Um, he still has the strength of his base. He's lost some of the sparkle, but he's still, by and away, the Republican frontrunner. And 
Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, when he decided not to run, said, I'm not running because I don't want it to be a pileup of non-Trump candidates who are going to end up getting Trump elected. And that's still a extremely real uh, possibility in the party. Um, I would also mention, note that the easiest attack of Donald Trump under a traditional form of politics would be he uh, encouraged an insurrection and attack on uh, the Capitol because he spent, you know, 90 days or however many it was trying to overthrow an election in every possible way he could find. He's totally unfit for the job because he can't fulfill its basic re requirements to protect the Constitution. In fact, he tried to shred it like that's a pretty should be a pretty strong attack. Almost none of the Asa Hutchinson, who might run the former governor of Arkansas, said you know, that's disqualifying. But he sort of said it once to Jonathan Carl on ABC's This Week. Like, other Republican candidates aren't attacking him. What does that mean? It means he still has a super powerful base in the party um, that makes it, you can't even talk about that stuff. Slate Plus listeners, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You can go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. And we, of course, do a bonus segment every week. That's part of the many, the, the panoply of benefits that you get by being a Slate Plus member. So what is our Slate Plus segment today, Emily? Slate Plus today is um, an interview that I'm going to do with Titus Kafar and Reginald Dwayne Betts about their new book, Redaction, which is this just amazing, gorgeous interweaving of art and poetry and essay to tell a story about a variety of experiences in America with law enforcement, with prison. Um, it's just a really powerful um, book that is just coming out. So Titus and Dwayne are going to come talk with me about it. So go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus and become a Slate Plus member now. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. 
California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. On May 11th, the COVID emergency officially comes to an end, according to the federal government. With that end, will come an extraordinary array of policy changes. During the pandemic, the government adjusted all kinds of public policies in ways that largely acted to protect poor people, also to make it harder for migrants to get into this country. So Emily, what are some of the key policy changes that came with the pandemic emergency and what were their impacts on poor people in particular? Well, there was an increase in SNAP benefits. Those are food stamps. You were able to get an extra allocation. And Medicaid enrollment changed so that the government wasn't constantly checking up and making sure that you were still eligible. It was called continuous Medicaid enrollment, and it allowed people to stay on the rolls. Sometimes people um, get kicked off the rolls because their income goes up, but sometimes they just can't figure out how to re-enroll, like just the bureaucratic red tape pushes them off. And so this was really helpful for solving that problem. And now people are about to lose both of those forms of benefits. And, you know, this is just going to be really hard on poor people. I mean, food stamps, medical insurance, these are not things that people are living in any kind of luxury with. These are just basic staples that help people in a very low-level way make ends meet. And it's going to be a real burden on the, you know, the people with the least to take these things away. And also there's Title 42, which allowed the government to use the the cover of a public health emergency, the legitimate cover of a public health emergency, to turn away lots of people at the border without kind of doing very much about it, to sort of make it automatic. Without allowing them to make a claim for asylum. And now that's going to change, and that's forcing the Biden administration to make uh, a set of policy changes, although I guess Republicans don't want to end the Title 42 employment in this case. So what what's going to happen there? I think it's really hard to tell, but it doesn't sound like the Biden administration is leaning toward more leniency on immigration. I mean, they're floating the idea of family detention, which is more punitive. And I think the Biden administration is facing a lot of people wanting to come in. It just seems to me like they don't know what to do uh, and that it's a real, from their point of view, a real political and human dilemma. But uh, I don't, doesn't look to me like they want more people to be coming in and having a chance to make their asylum claims. No, they don't. I mean, they've initiated policies that if you don't make an asylum claim in the countries, if you if it's possible for you to make an asylum claim, say, in Mexico before you get to the United States, you can't make an asylum claim. And then the the 
possibility of family detention seems to me because it's unworkable. I mean, the legal challenges to family detention of longer than 20 days um, would be would face the Biden administration just as they did the Trump administration. It seems and they're already overloaded um, and the number of migrants is even larger. So as a logistical and legal matter, it seems like a really complicated policy. And so it and a terrible idea. One conclusion you could draw is that is the point you made, which is that it's actually a signal to try to keep people from coming. That, that floating this idea that they're looking at it is a signal to tell people we're going to be harsh in all these different ways. So stop coming. Honestly, I do not, as a, both as a political matter and as a policy matter, understand why the Biden administration doesn't just try to extend what's been going on. I understand as a like it's inhumane, but it's not as though the Biden folks are trying to be like massively more humane. They still don't want people to come into the country. It, the, the thing that that it seems that like I've felt about the whole border situation over the past five some years is that it is there's a fundamental problem in the world, which is that there are millions of, of immiserated people and they are migrate like a significant percentage of them are using Central America and and Mexico to migrate into the United States um, from lots of different countries, not just people from Central America and Mexico. And there is only two ways you can deal with it. Way one is you let a lot of those people in to the United States, and way two is you don't. All we've had has just been like incredibly confusing series of patchwork measures. Can you imagine how confusing it is for? some poor migrant who's coming up from, you know, Venezuela and they, they learn they have to like apply on a new app. They've got to download an app on their phone and apply for asylum on an app. Like what the fuck is that? That's the one of the Biden administration's pol new policies. It's just so complicated and confusing and, uh, and, and contentious. If I were a Biden person, I would just not talk about it and just like continue whatever the the policy was. And, you know, even though it's causing misery and even though it annoys some of the people in your base, there's no easy way out of it. And the Biden people have not found a way that is going to make it better. You could add a cynical piece to that, which is that when Biden does things that end up being an effective embracement of or a largely an embracement of Trump era policies, the flack he gets for it actually helps him with the constituencies he's going to need in uh, the next presidential election, because as he's being attacked as being overly liberal and super woke and all these other things, there are some actions he can take. And some people see the the promise to veto the D.C. criminal justice bill in this way um, is a kind of triangulation. Every time a Democrat opens their mouth on immigration, a Republican congressman gets his wings. I mean, it's it is it's not a great issue to be talking about. And all the stories like the, your New York Times, Emily, had this incredible story about what's happened to a lot of the kids who've come into the country and have been allowed Hannah to- Hannah Dreyer, amazing reporting. Amazing Dreyer. reporting, allowed to come into the country and usually are, have been placed with relatives, an aunt, an uncle, a cousin. And these kids, 13, 14, 15 years old, are working illegally in shocking numbers and jobs that are you know, just- terrible jobs and aren't going to school in the way they should, aren't getting the education they should. And it's, it's just miserable. Like the, it, we, I don't know. I, it's, I'm so frustrated by it all. Well, it feels like an insoluble problem. Um, you know, immigration generally right now, I do think the child labor situation seemed like a shocking dereliction of duty by our government, which was not checking on these children after they had been placed. So we can separate certain pieces of this. But, but the it's idea so hard to it's do a, it because like it's so hard to check on it. It's so hard to track like they don't have the resources. It's hard. Well, it it's would a dereliction money. of duty, no. but it's also really hard. 
Well, wait, they're not staffing the agency that would do the checking. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah. like, yes, it would take money, but that is not rocket science. What I wonder is with respect to the SNAP benefits, the extension of SNAP benefits that are um, that are going away and the continuous enrollment provision that you mentioned, Emily, on Medicaid, that if those are picked up as a part of the conversation debate otherwise over both the, the debt limit and the budget, you saw this week President Biden offer a plan to save Medicare or extend its life by 25 years by increasing a particular tax on those who make over $400,000 um, as a way to put pressure on Republicans and say, we want to save this program. We want to tax those, you know, the wealthy. He's also going to put forward, I think, a 25% billion dollar, a billionaire tax. Um, set up a fight and say, essentially, we want to make the wealthy pay a gr- their fair share and you want to cut benefits to those who are less well off. It would seem an obvious um, framing device that could take that would take advantage of these two expirations. Um, and uh, but you there have been a lot of instances in which um, people you would normally think would would use the plight of the poor and those with less as a political maneuver, um, haven't. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see that. Um, Jeff Stein of the Washington Post made a good point about the president's budget, at least, which was released on Thursday, so we don't have the details, but was that essentially that um, a lot of the themes of the the ambitious Joe Biden um, that were criticized as too large and too big will actually be in his next budget. So the sort of original Build Back Better approach May not, is not actually going away. So that'll be really um, interesting to see how much he pushes that as a way to get reelected. Emily, can you just bring us home by talking again about the Medicaid switch and how many people are going to be affected by this requirement now that you have to recertify? How many people are going to fall off the Medicaid rolls? And and I can and also what the legitimate arguments are. I mean, I do think I, I would like to acknowledge up front it's. It, been expensive. It's cost a lot of money for for the federal government to expand Medicaid. And st- states also have borne, borne some of that burden, although less because the feds have been paying a higher percentage during the emergency. But who's it going to affect and, and, and what's the scale of it going to be? I mean, up to 15 million people could lose coverage. So we're talking about a huge impact waves across the country. And You know, when people lose their health insurance, they don't get the preventive care that can keep them out of the emergency room. They can experience a lot of anxiety when you don't know how you're whether you can go to the doctor, what to do if you get sick. Like that can cause a real psychological burden, which then, of course, that kind of stress um, can increase physical burdens as well. So I just don't understand the idea of taking away that very basic part of the safety net from people. It just seems so much suffering for nothing. Well, I think the the argument for, the, for at least one of the arguments from the other side is that the, the the pandemic measure stopped double checking if you were enrolled in Medicaid and met the elig- eligibility requirements, and that you want to reinstate it to make sure that it's running efficiently and the people who are on it are on it. And and presumably there could be some kind of solution that perhaps continues the, the constant enrollment, but then also has some, you know, eligibility check afterwards, right? So the default switches. But there's this kind of incredible bullshit claim that that is made by people who are like, oh, we have to make these programs more efficient. And what they do is they just make it more difficult to access. They create all these obstacles. And yes, you do bar. You There are people who are cheating either accidentally or 
intentionally because their child is no longer under 18 or whatever. They've, they, they've earned something that puts them over an eligibility cap. But the number of people cheating and the kind of is pretty small and the burden that you're imposing on people, the tax on being poor of time and energy to access these benefits is, is outlandish. And so the, it's, it's, it is kind of outrageous the way we use this excuse of efficiency just to actually create more work for lots of people. Right. But just because some people make dishonest claims doesn't mean you can't make something more efficient. But, there, but there no are, one's trying are, to make it more efficient. I mean, the reason, but the Republicans, reason for example, are, in, yeah, but you in can't Texas characterize and other states are making it more difficult. They're making the che- they're not even doing the easy things that would allow them to re-enroll people simply. Right, but, they're making it but, harder but the, for people to re-enroll simply. Right, I know, but when you define any policy option by the the cruelest implementation of it, you're not having a conversation. You're just like, well, but the cruelest whatever, implementation is, as it happens, what is being done in in the state of Texas, which is you know ten percent of the know, American that's not, po- country. But that's not what. But what I'm saying is why you couldn't have the continuous enrollment exist and then put the eligibility tests which are a part of keeping the he- the program solvent and healthy and able to provide in- benefits for those who need it, right? It can't it, it was never designed to have indefinite health benefits for everybody on Medicaid. Do we think I mean, what do we think I, do we should we have eligibility requirements for Medicaid? Maybe we should just have Medicaid for everyone. It's pretty bare bones. Like when you talk to people on Medicaid, they are not getting like the Cadillac of healthcare. So, I just have a basic question about why we have eligibility requirements really at all for basic basic health insurance. I realize that's not the current policy, John, so it doesn't really address the point. I mean, maybe. universal healthcare is a perfectly fine position to take. Yeah, I mean, for Medicaid in particular, where you're not talking about anything the least bit fancy, the idea that eligibility requirements are important, I feel skeptical about. But I understand that that would make it go over budget, et cetera. Th- th- that's the way the system is run at the moment. I mean, you're talking about, you're not talking about, you're talking about changing to a different model of healthcare, which is a perfectly fine argument, but not any, not one that anybody is really making in this particular context. Emily, everything, and I do mean everything, is happening with the abortion pill. You summarized it, actually, in the New York Times this week, but then a whole bunch of stuff happened after you summarized it in the New York Times. Oh my God, so true. So please try to tell us the 378 different things that are happening around mifeprestone and misoprostol. Maybe I said those both right. Not even sure. <laughs> uh, so the reason the abortion pill matters so much is that since the end of Roe last summer, abortion pills, which are being mailed to women all over the country legally and sort of in a gray legal area, they've really muted some of the effect of the severe restrictions on abortion that 14 states have opposed, imposed. So that's why this is so crucial. And Abortion opponents see this happening and they are fighting back and they have this very bold counter strategy, which is a lawsuit they filed um, in a particular division of a district in Texas. Um, This harks back to our discussion of judge shopping a few weeks ago. And this lawsuit challenges the FDA's approval of medication abortion from the beginning. So 
medication abortion, which involves mifepristone and misoprostol, um, has been legal in this country since the year 2000, gone through several different presidential administrations since then in terms of the FDA's oversight. And now uh, this lawsuit is saying that all of that should be undone. Um, that the FDA approval was um, not allowed from the beginning. And the plaintiffs are claiming that medication abortion is unsafe. Actually, research since 2000 has mounted to show that it's extremely safe and effective. But that's not something that the plaintiffs are acknowledging. And the reason this lawsuit, which could seem kind of fanciful, given the actual data and the way that FDA regulations work, the reason it could have a chance of succeeding is that it's before um, Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who is a longtime abortion opponent. He's also known for the sweeping injunction against the Biden administration that allowed the Remain in Mexico policy to stay in place. He seems like the kind of activist judge who could, sure, why not issue a nationwide injunction or try to to block the FDA's approval of medication abortion? There are various reasons why legally that really might not work. It would It's a ruling that if it happened would be immediately appealed. But it's really bold because it's not just saying that medication abortion should not be allowed in states where abortion is illegal. It's saying that nobody nationwide should have abortion pills legally. And, you know, abortion pills are now accounting for more than half of the abortions that happen nationwide. So that's what is at stake here. Just to add on, there's also issues around Walgreens, issues around lawsuits filed by Democratic AGs. Women in Texas are filing lawsuits about, that's not really about the medication abortions, but about being unable to get abortions in Texas. So what are some of the other issues happening here? Yeah, there's this other kind of state-by-state fight happening that involves the big uh, pharmacy retail chains. And Walgreens right now is in the spotlight. So The Biden administration, FDA, loosened some of the regulations and now are allowing pharmacies to apply to be certified to dispense medication abortion on their own. And so when that announcement was made, Walgreens, CVS, other chains said, yes, in states where abortion is legal, we are going to do this. And this really signals like the mainstreaming of abortion pills, right? If you can, I mean, you still need a prescription and everything, but if you can pick them up at your local pharmacy, as opposed to going to a doctor's office to get them, which or a abortion clinic, which has been the standard, that's like a different reality. It creates a whole new market. Then 21 um, Republican attorneys general wrote a kind of no, no, no letter to the pharmacy chains. And what matters here is that four of those states are places in which abortion remains legal. Um, It's Kansas, Iowa, Alaska and Montana, I think. And Walgreens immediately caved and said, oh, okay, then we won't actually um, apply for this certification. We will not dispense the abortion pills in those four states. And then, uh, this was the part that happened after I wrote, uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, said, okay, Walgreens, if that's the stance you're going to take, I'm going to cancel a $50 million contract that I have with Walgreens to supply something, mostly to the California prison system. And so you see here a kind of like tit-for-tat face-off between anti-abortion states and a state that cares about abortion access, trying to use its market power to kind of fight back. And then you see this company caught in the middle. Um, I think Walgreens was trying to play it politically safe, also doesn't want to take any risks of these attorneys general going after it, um, despite the legal protection it would have. And then you have California heading back. 
it's really interesting the way that I think we grew up in a generation at a time when the idea that national companies would be subject to these political wins was was not it was not common. It was not the same. I mean, there were things like around divestment from South Africa um, where companies would get pressure. But in general, like through the 90s and early 2000s, companies could just it was just like everyone go about your business. You do your business. Republicans will protect you. Democrats may pester you a little bit about labor rights, but basically you go ahead and do, th- do what you want. And now companies, I mean, whether it's Disney in Florida, whether it's uh, like National Football League or Major League Baseball around where they're holding all-star games or how their players are behaving. Uh, now you have pharmacies. They're just getting caught up in these political fights that they so desperately don't want to be in. And yet they kind of can't stay out of it. This is sort of why when you end up in in uh i think a characteristic of fascism if i'm right is that you end up with these state company private companies that effectively are doing the bidding of the national government uh not just in economic terms but also in political terms and i worry that this is a thing that we could be heading it's a, it's like a trend that i don't like well not all the pressure from the, to on the corporations is coming from government or political uh areas i mean the the pressure on where you can hold NBA finals and where you can, what Disney has to do is coming from their employees. I mean, so there's not, it's not just one pressure. Yeah, for sure. Yes, exactly. So Emily, just to close this topic out, do we know yet anything about whether we have a, an increase in, in pregnancies that are taking, going to term in this country because abortion is now banned in a lot of places or much harder to access? Do we have, are we starting to get data that births are on the increase in places where there are now tighter abortion restrictions or do we not yet have that data? Well, since it was really like the very end of June that um, the, the Dobbs, the Supreme Court's abortion ruling overturning Roe went into effect, we don't quite know yet, right? We need to let at least nine months elapse. I feel, feel like we're not quite there. But we're getting close. And certainly there's going to be, you know, a lot of interest in that research. There has been an effort to count the number of abortions by mostly calling abortion clinics and seeing if their numbers are up or down. And um, overall across the country, they're down, but not by a huge percentage. And so one thing that you see here, both the um, surely the the effect of the abortion pills getting mailed, um, and we know about those numbers from some of the groups that are mailing them. And then also people are traveling to some degree. So North Carolina has become a place where the number of abortions has risen significantly because it's um, near southern states where people are trying to cross and um, and go there instead. So there is some shifting around, but um, and it will be really interesting to see what happens to the birth rate in the next, you know, six months to a year. When did the Texas law go into effect? Um, that went into effect in fall 2021. I wonder if there's some Texas birth rate data. There was a real effort to get um, women to be able to cross the borders, right? It was only Texas and a lot of money poured in and there were resources for people to travel. So that also probably muted the effect, although there are certainly stories of people who had babies that they really were not planning to have and the hardship that that has caused for them. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are like me sitting alone at a Vegas casino bar, striking up a conversation with a random stranger, Emily, what will you be chattering about? I um, 
was at an event this week for um, a book by Matthew Connolly, who um, is a professor at Columbia. It's called The Declassification Engine, this book. And so the event was about the huge problem in this country of overclassification and what we could possibly do about it. And I recommend this book, um, which is a history of how the government became so secretive and how, you know, billions and billions of records have been locked away. And one of the things that Matt Connolly um, pointed out during his talk was that the number of documents that the government is producing that are classified has just enormously increased and the number of declassifications has enormously decreased. And so when you look at it, you think to yourself, oh my God, historians of the future are just not going to have the same kind of materials to sift through that historians have had over the last few decades as they try to look back. And, um, you know, Matt is very focused on trying to address that. But um, one of the amazing facts is that the government I don't believe that, honestly. I don't believe that. I think there's just... There's also an enormous increase in the amount of unclassified material. Like historians are going to have plenty of material to work with. Like the the composition of it will be different. But the idea that there's like less information available to historians is seems not persuasive to me. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I guess you still could argue that overclassification will prevent them from seeing things that could be of real interest. And so more hot takes, less actual information informing the historians. Yeah, that does worry me still, even if the overall totals, you could be right about David, I don't know. Um, But the last thing I was going to say is that um, one of Matt's kind of, uh, at least to me, um, attention-grabbing facts is that the government spends more money on military bans than it does on addressing um, the problem of over-secrecy in in the National Archives. And there was a lot of discussion at the talk about how under-resourced the National Archives are. And uh, and that probably relates to the reason that um, at least Joe Biden and Mike Pence, in the theory of some of the people at the talk, were found to have the classified documents they had because there's no national archivist that helps vice presidents or presidents pack up. And so that might be one reason that um, records ended up in their private homes. Former President Trump, of course, is in his own class. John, what is your chatter? My chatter is about my uh, Slate Gabfest Reads uh, book, which is Chip War by Chris Miller, which I was... Uh, turned on to by uh, Bridget, a wonderful Bridget, our amazing researcher and colleague who is um, sadly leaving us. But that is another topic for another day. But she um, suggested this uh, book and it was such a joy to read. It's because it's got good stories. And uh, one of the first books that changed my life was The Soul of a New Machine by Tracy Kidder, which is about the early days of the race to make um, personal computers. And this is about the rise of the the computer chip. Um, and so it has all kinds of, it has good characters. It also has amazing geopolitical um, instruction, the description of how the machines work that do the lithography that prints and creates chips these days with 15 million transistors on them is just a marvel of, of manufacturing and science and just ingenuity. Um, and also you, you get a, completely new way of thinking about the world, which is um, which is very helpful in terms of thinking about China and Taiwan and the US and Russia and even the Netherlands um, and why the Netherlands are so important. Um, so uh, it's really an, a joy. So you should go read it and then you can listen to our conversation. I am so excited for that. That sounds awesome. I love that's That sounds really good. Isn't the Netherlands important because don't they make, there's some a certain machine they make that only they make. And if you deprive the Chinese of it, 
then the Chinese are going to be unable to make any kind of good chip. Very wise. David Plotz scores 100%. My chatter. Uh, first off, our friend Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister of Australia, occasional GabFest guest, he has a new podcast out, Defending Democracy. It's going to be a six-part uh, series about whether Western liberal democracy can be saved. And if you have listened to Malcolm on the GabFest, you know how smart he is and how passionate he is on this particular subject. So check out uh, Defending Democracy. Um also, my other chatter is I just want to update people about the greatest idea that I've ever had, which was last week. You may remember that I proposed that Home Alone be remade with a dog in the Macaulay Culkin role. So I have since learned that that actually happened, that there was a movie called Alone for Christmas, which is known colloquially as Bone Alone, about a dog that is home over Christmas and three th thieves try to take presents from under the Christmas tree. And uh, so, unfortunately, unfortunately, I've been beaten to it. Um, they're basically, it was like a really cheap movie. So I think you could make a high-end movie with a better dog and real stars in it. But, um, but the, uh, my great idea was, was uh, foreshadowed. Listeners, fortunately, you have great chatters, which no one, ideas that no one has ever had before movies that no one has ever made and you tweet them to us at, at slate gabfest and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com and this week's chatter comes from rebecca carr i recently saw the world premiere of predictor which is a new play written by jennifer blackmer and just cannot stop raving about it it tells the true story of meg crane who invented the home pregnancy test as a young woman in 1967 the playwright was inspired to write the play after reading a new york times article titled can women be trusted with their own pregnancy tests? Uh, the play is funny, infuriating, and emotional. I went with my 80-year-old mother, and the audience was packed with other women around her age. I could not count how many times I saw them turn to each other and say something like, that's what it really was like, after a female character described something like not being able to get a pregnancy test without her husband's permission. If it's playing near you, see it. If you're connected to a local theater company, produce it. It is funny, timely, and so good. That's our show for today. The Political Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is still Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio of Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. I am so thrilled to be here for Slate Plus with Titus Kafar and Dwayne Betts. Um, two just amazing artist um, thinkers in my world in New Haven. And I'm here to talk with them about this beautiful new book, which arrived at my house called Redaction. It has this cloth cover that um, is just very appealing to pick up. And then it has amazing images and poetry and writing in it. Congratulations to both of you on this accomplishment. 
Titus, can you tell us about the origin of this project? Um, how did you come up with it? What were you trying to accomplish? <laughs> I, I, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, basically, Dwayne and I met at Jennifer McTiernan's house. Um, she was having this like dinner party thing. And uh, when I showed up, um, I met Dwayne and we proceeded to argue for the entire night. Um, we had both read uh book and we had very different opinions of that book and uh, we just went in and um, I felt like if I can spend a whole evening arguing with somebody and still like them at the end, this is definitely a w- relationship worth investing in. So that's how it started. And that intensity has been our relationship since, since the beginning. So um Fast forward, I was given a residency at Bowdoin in Maine, and I brought my family up and invited Dwayne to come visit while I was there. They gave me the art department, the entire department to be my studio um, because it was summer. Everybody was gone and I couldn't I couldn't settle into the studio space. So um, Isaac this amazing young man came up to us and said, well, why don't, came up to me and said, why don't you start making prints? Dwayne had brought his family to hang out in Maine with us. He started working on um, some typesetting, old school letterpress type stuff. And we started bringing the the work together, my images on top of his. And the I think the crazy thing about this is essentially our first sketches are what the end work looks like. We came, we came to it pretty quickly. Um, there were some slight variations, but we, we sort of came to it uh, faster than any other project I've come to. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is at most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights now! Gay rights now! 
With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gaze Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.